Let's go to the Lord right in prayer as we prepare our hearts together as a family for Second Samuel 2. Lord, I know that there's so much that could go on in our minds that isn't even necessarily bad things, just not the right thing at the right time that could keep us from hearing what you want to speak to us tonight. But Lord, we recognize that you have a word for us tonight. We came here expectant. And as we came here expectant, Lord, we expect you to do great things. So, Lord, I pray tonight that you would supersede any great expectation. That you'd overcome every weakness. And tonight you would be glorified. You'd show yourself strong. You'd do amazing work with us. Please have your way. I just commit, Lord, this evening, I pray for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit and that each of us, Lord, would hear you tonight. And I thank you, Lord, for the way that you save lives. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you've saved ours. For the Father, for the way you've sent Jesus down to pay the price for our sins at the cross so that you could both be a righteous judge who judges rightly and punishes all wrong and yet still also is a God, Lord, who is full of mercy and love, rich in mercy and rich in loving kindness. So, Lord, may those things be clear and evident tonight and teach us, Lord, what we need to learn from this text. Have your way now, we pray. We commit every moment of this to you. Redeem every second, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would say tonight as I would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be that for which you test all things true, false. Let's read through the first few verses to kind of get a feel for the chapter and what's taking place. It tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Well, then where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. And David went up there. And his two wives also, Achinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmelite, the Carmelite. David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so he dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Let's stop there for a moment. And that, starts, that starts us on a journey now where David begins, begins to be king. What we'll learn is that David rules for 40 years. Of those 40 years, seven and a half of those years will be here in Hebron. So for seven and a half years, David will remain in this particular place, king over just the area of Judah or of the Judahites, Judeans, who, of course, um, David is a part of. He's from that particular tribe. It's important to recognize this term Judah or Judean shortened is where we get the term Jew from, by the way. It starts this chapter, I want to remind you, he starts with the words, it happened after this. What's the after this that happened? Well, if you remember, David has just spent 15 years of his life running from Saul, the old king. David was anointed king 
15 years ago. And as David was anointed king, there was already someone who thought they had a right to the throne who had been fired but was unwilling to step down from the throne. And because they were unwilling to step down from the throne, that made things really difficult for David. For 15 years, David has been, in essence, a refugee, a fugitive. And in those 15 years, he's had to send his family away to another country, a country, by the way, from initially that at least his great-grandmother Ruth was from, the Moabites. So we, in essence, drop them off in Jordan today. He's had two, at least two opportunities, two very clear opportunities in Scripture, to kill Saul, the guy that is that king, and he hasn't. For 15 years, he has not taken matters into his own hands, though he could have on many occasions. In the last chapter, we found that there was a battle that took place at the end, the chapter prior, that was First Samuel 31. A battle which, by the way, David was removed from. He was unable to fight with his men that were with him. And as that was the case, Saul had already been foretold that he was going to die in that battle, him and his sons. And it is true, David, I'm sorry, Saul and his sons, not all of them, but at least Jonathan and another were killed. In the last chapter, an Amalekite tries to claim credit for killing Saul, though Saul clearly killed himself, as First Samuel 31 makes clear thinking he would get some kind of reward. And David instead executes him as a murderer and then writes a dirge to teach others. So this, after this, really describes half of David's life up to this point. So we're gonna, we can read this, and we're going to go through this, and I kind of get the idea here that we can kind of look and say, well, David's a good example at this point, and he'll really, in essence, be a pretty good example for at least uh, until about chapter 11. Uh, where, for the most part, we're going to see him really doing some good things to f sort of model after. But can we take it a little deeper than that? Can it be more than just, okay, David, he's a good guy, and we know ultimately Jesus will come from him. He's, you know, lying from the tribe of Judah, but he's also the seed of David, the son of David. We know that. I, I get that idea. But then I start... Having, I mean, there's this place where you have to walk it. I mean, I, I, you know, please understand, when I get alone with the text, I'm there, it's just me and my Bible and a pad of paper, or these days, it's kind of my, you know, it's my iPad, and I'm just kind of typing out notes, and what is it saying to me? But sooner or later, I have to take the text, and I have to go for a walk with it. And I'm walking, I'm going, you know, and we just say, you know, don't ever really kind of share a text unless you've gotten it in a headlock, it's gotten you in a headlock, and you've kind of been thrown in the mat a couple times, until somewhere down the line, you really feel like you know what this thing smells like when you get close to it. And, and understand, it's at that point that the Lord starts to speak to me. Now, so this doesn't have to be you, but at least it is with me. And he starts to show me my own walk with the Lord and how when I first said yes to Jesus, I was more than happy to make Jesus my Savior. To me, it makes no sense in the world that somebody would say no to Jesus as Savior. I mean, even if you were just kind of trying to add him into your... Now, we recognize that's bad doctrine, but even if in your own crazy mind you just wanted to add him in with a bunch of other things you were already doing until you start reading Scripture and realize that that's not acceptable, why not get your get-out-of-hell-free card? You know, again, goofy doctrine, but why would anyone say no to Jesus if that's all we're giving them? But to say no to Jesus as Lord, well, that actually happens by even a good deal of the church. And that's a concern because nowhere in Scripture... Does the Bible ever say that as long as we confess Jesus is our Savior, we're good? It says if we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised them from the dead, we'll be saved. The issue is him being Lord. And so I realize, though, that that becomes quite a process. Though I proclaim it, 
It is really such a life alteration that so many of my habits prior really need to be not only re-altered, but reinvented. But the same thing happened, to be honest, in a week and a half, it'll be 27 years when I married my wife. Because though I was a single, I was a single guy for 24 years. Don't do the math. But, uh, you know, in that period of time, I'd learn how to be a single guy. And, you, you know, you wake up after, you know, you know, you've got that sort of engagement process. And it's kind of a weird thing, because unless you have premarital from us, where we really kind of get into what it means to be married, uh, for the most part, like even the things we got, it, it's like all of that time is spent basically picking out the design on a doily, you know, and picking out the color of a tablecloth. Like, I could care less. I'm going to get the girl at the end. That's all that really matters. Pick your doilies. You know, but been in all of that, then you kind of wake up married the next day. and You're like, oh, my goodness. Now, what do we do? And you realize it's like there is no area of my life that's not going to be changed for the better because of this wedding. And in the same way, the moment I said yes to Jesus, I knew that life was going to be changed. I just didn't really grasp how different life was going to get. But there is a problem. That Jesus is making the demand to be Lord. And that is the rightful king upon the throne. But there's an old me that doesn't want Christ on the throne still. And, and what we learn is the old me never converts. The old me will never submit and finally say, all right, you're right, Jesus is Lord. The old me has to die. And David will not take the throne until Saul is dead. And David wasn't even the one who killed him. And in the same way, we can have that battle. That battle to let the rightful king take the throne. Like David here in our situation. And what I discover with this as well is even when David gets the throne, and by the way, we'll find it's, he will never, he will never kind of conquer it in a sense of, well, this is my throne, so darn it, you just better give it to me. He waits until it's handed to him, till there is a, an open choice, a surrender, if you will. From the people. And what we discover in that seven and a half years is there's a small portion that hands over this rightful king's lordship before the rest of it does. And perhaps that's the case in your life. It certainly has been in mine. Where somewhere down the line, I'm like, okay, I could just, I think I'm, I'm going to heaven now. I, I mean, I prayed some kind of prayer and it seemed like that was a cool deal sealer, you know, but somewhere down the line, it gets more than that. And I remember, man, I, I said yes to Jesus at 19 years old. I had an, you know, an altar call at a big Christian music festival. That's how I know that God can work at those things because I'm proof of that. But then for the next three and a half years, I lived very much like I used to before that. So really, in essence, I lived like I was going to hell, but I told you I was going to heaven. And that must have been horribly confusing for everyone. And I remember asking a pastor in those days, why doesn't he just kill us? I mean, you got to realize that's probably a weird way to lead into a total stranger because I really didn't know the guy. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I says, well, if Jesus died so we could go to heaven, then why doesn't he just kill us the moment we say yes so we can go to heaven? I mean, why do we, what do we, in other words, why do we live the rest of this life? And the poor guy had no answer, which is really sad. And if you really think that Jesus just died for you to send you to heaven, I would imagine it would be confusing for you too. But Jesus didn't die to send you to heaven. Jesus died to be with you. Heaven's the product of that. I didn't marry my wife so I could move, you know, so that I could just sort of one day be buried next to her somewhere on a tomb. I married her so I could be with her. And all the things that come with that, 
We're all part and parcel with the wedding. In our text, Saul is now dead. And this would be an easy time for David to sort of show up like the big sheriff at this point. You know, whoa, 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 whoa. You know and he's just kind of, yes, yeah, pilgrim, it's time to take off. But he doesn't do any of that. Notice in verse 1, and what a great example here. It says, it happened that after this, and again, that's half of his life of running, being a fugitive, dropping his family off in today, Jordan, you know, and not killing Saul when he had the opportunity. We're going to find it says, then he inquired of the Lord. And he asked two very important questions. First is, if you, in the simplest sense, is now the when? And the second is, is this and where is the where? And I want you to recognize God has a when and a where for every one of us. And often he will tell us in advance that when and where, well before we ever when it and when, but well before we ever wear it. And then the question is, well, why? Why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just drop that cool bomb on us since it's going to be a blessing anyways? Why doesn't he just drop that cool thing on us right beforehand and say, all right, let's get, get your bags packed. Let's go. Could it possibly be so that I could recognize that everything that he does in between is prepped to receive that promise? And if I realize that, I start to see how many times has God done a covenant with someone that really didn't come to pass right away. If you're a get-or-done-now kind of person, and you really think when you look at the back of something that says microwave for 45 seconds, you think, man, what am I going to do for that period of time? Well, then probably God's promises and his covenants can be very difficult for you to grasp. Especially when we go through the Old Testament. We look at Noah. In between the time that God fulfills the promise, if you will, and the time God gives the promise, in between, he builds a giant boat. For unprecedented falling water as a testimony for over a century before he prepares to rebuild the world through this man and his family. Now, I want to remind you, when Noah's telling everyone that it's going to rain, that's a simple thing for us, especially here in London. Let's be honest. Rain is the norm. But according to the book of Genesis, water had never fallen from the sky before. According to Genesis, by the way, what was, what was clear is, 2.7 made clear, by the way, uh, as it led up to, actually from 2.1 to 7, where it led up, it said that water just kind of came up from the ground, and in essence, God had his own sprinkler system. So imagine telling everyone something that they've never seen before, so that water is going to fall from the sky. And you can imagine the people going, oh, how unscientific is that? Everyone knows that water comes from the ground, not from the sky. What kind of dope does that? And for over a century, this guy builds a giant boat for a giant floating zoo where, where all of humanity is going to die but a small handful of people, which I always think is a weird thing to put in a nursery, for instance. Look at where, you know, the children are. Look at all the people are dead and there's some floating people. Anyways. But in, you know that in between, though, God is going to allow every person to see the strangest thing they've ever seen, a giant boat in the middle of, the, of where there is no water, for people to ask questions. And one of the things God does in between the time he lays out a promise on your life and he brings it to fulfillment is he has you, to be honest, in living in faith of that promise. You look pretty weird. Hey, let's be honest. 
try to explain to somebody out there, I love a guy, but I'm not really like that. And he lived 2,000 years ago, 4,000 miles away. He speaks to me, though he died. And, yeah, you know, he rose again. And then he's going to come back from me, from the sky, and suck me into the sky. We're going to be together forever as best buds. And he's my Lord and Savior. Oh, and he's God in the flesh. And he died on a cross. He was murdered 2,000 years ago to pay for a crime I'm going to do now. How does that not sound weird? That doesn't mean it isn't true. There's a lot of things that sound really weird that are true. But as we hold on to the hope of God's promises, sometimes there's very little evidence to substantiate it other than our faith. But doesn't it say that faith is the essence of, of the essence of things hoped for and the uh, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? Who hopes for what they already see? We actually substantiate the reality of God's promises in our embracing them. How about Abraham? It took him at least twenty five years to see that come to pass, and he never even got a lot of the land. That he, I mean, he purchased a, a small plot of ground so that he could be buried in it. By the way, does anyone know where Abraham was buried? Hebron, for what it's worth. The cave of Machpelah. Kind of important because that's where we're going to see David's going to start now. But for 25 years, he's going to lose his dad. He's going to leave Lot behind. They're going to separate. He's going to build four altars, which is really important. It's its own lesson. It's important to note that in every Middle Eastern culture, there were four basic categories for gods. The God of purpose, the God of provision, the God of protection, and the God of pleasure. And we, and you recognize as you follow Abraham's life, he builds four altars. Because what Abraham, we learn about Abraham at the end of Joshua in Joshua 24, is that Abraham was raised in an idol-worshipping home. Which means he was raised under those things. Why does he build four altars? Because what Abraham has to realize is that the living, real God is all of the things he's been trying to do in other ones. He is the only God of purpose. And he's the only God of provision. And the only God of protection. And he's the only God of pleasure. You know how, by the way, you paid a God of pleasure? What you sacrificed for a God of pleasure? If anyone's familiar with Molech, for instance, or Asher, what they sacrificed... They sacrificed their firstborn. Does that sound familiar with Abraham? And yet in all of that waiting, what Abraham will do is build these altars, including that third one, the God of protection. And he has to realize, God, you really are all. You are the Lord of all. Do you know where he builds, by the way, that altar to the God of protection that our living God is? He builds it in Hebron. I find that interesting. But then David, I'm sorry, but then Abraham will also learn in that time how to love. Because God introduces love, not with Adam and Eve. Not, by the way, with Adam and his children. The first time we read the word love is when God says, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Genesis 22. The first act of love in Scripture was a father giving his only begotten son. Consider that. Moses would spend 40 years in the wilderness. God gave a promise. 40 years later, he would bring it to pass. And what happens in between? Like all of these things, all of those things are preparation to receive the promise of God. And during that time, by the way, Moses will learn how to be a shepherd, which will be a very good thing for him as he's shepherding two million Jewish people as they leave Egypt. 
And then we have David, who spent half of his life running for his life because David had to learn how to be a sheep. So he could say things like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Because you're with me. One thing David had concluded is no matter where I go, God, you are there. So let me ask you, are there promises God has put in your life that you haven't seen come to pass yet? And you start to wonder, did I really hear right? Were those promises really promises of God? Now, maybe some of those promises you think, well, okay, I kind of get the idea the Lord's going to come back. Well, you know, that's going to happen sooner or later and the world's going to explode and the universe is going to disseminate, if you will. Melt the elements will melt in the fervent heat. Okay, kind of get that. Glad it's not happening at the moment. Well, what about ones like the idea of the freedom of sin? Are there sins you're still dealing with and you think, God, but you promised that this would go. Why am I still dealing with this? When Paul writes, by the way, to the Romans, Paul had already been a Christian for over 20 years. And when he writes things like, why do I do what I don't want to do? Now, it doesn't encourage me that another guy's struggling, except for the fact that I realize this is a guy who really loves the Lord. God has right scripture, and he's still dealing with sin. But he's confident that he knows what God's going to do in it. He who began that good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And I'm confident of that. And God does have a when. And God does have a where. And David does not take matters into his own hands and fills those gaps himself. He asks God. Did you notice that in verse 1? Don't worry, we won't do this with every verse, but we have to set up the sort of scene here. By the way, Paul, going back to him for a moment, in Romans 1.13, for what it's worth, we kind of get the when thing, because he says, by the way, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I'd often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. Some of you see that, by the way, in the Thessalonian letters as well, where Paul's like, oh, but Satan hindered me. And somehow we give Satan such credit. You do, you do know that God is everywhere. He's almighty, and he knows what he's doing, right? And he's sovereign. I mean, you do know that, right? So how in the world does Satan get past God to get to you? Do you think God blinked somewhere down there? And he's like, whoa, whoa, where did, where did he go? Where did he go? Is that really what happens? It's amazing what credit we can give. And it really is in the face of God to do that. But please understand, Romans 1.13, Paul says, Look at, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I don't want you to be unaware. I often plan to come to you guys. But I was hindered until now, he says, that I might have some fruit among you. Just as among the other Gentiles. What Paul ultimately knew is that I, though I've wanted to come, when the time is right, God's going to have me there, and that time will be fruitful time. If I come early, it won't be fruitful time. And we, you know, you probably learned this. Our attitude is usually now is best. Have you, is that kind of your attitude? It's mine. Especially when it comes to like the blessings of God. It's like now is best. I have a 13-year-old daughter, and perhaps in a few years she might be able to handle a chainsaw for some good. Right now, if she had a chainsaw, now is not good. That doesn't make a chainsaw bad, but it would be bad in her hands. It's not her time for it. And in the same way, God does have things planned, but he recognizes sometimes the things that are going to happen in between are to prepare us so that we actually take the promise right when we receive it. 
And maybe you're in that situation and you're like, but by now I'm sure I would be married or by this point I should have 15 kids. And I just, you know, whatever the things are that you've already planned for your life that you think is best. God has a when and he's never early, but he's never late. But he not only has a when, he also has a where. In Acts 16, by the way, for what it's worth, Paul, and I, the, the fun part about this is it's Paul's second, we call it sec, Paul's second missionary trip, but it's just life for Paul. It isn't like Paul's like, okay, let's do our second mission trip. Hey, let's send out some support letters, and let's make sure we start a, a Facebook page, and we're going to twit the whole thing. It's not like he's doing any of that. In the simplest sense of it, this is just life, and Paul's back out again, and he scoops up this kid probably roughly the same age as David was when he first got called. And the person that he scoops up is a kid named Precious. Precious, by the way, in Greek is Timotheos. Or if we say Timothy, Timothy means my precious. And he picks up this kid. And as he picks up this kid, we read after that in Acts 16.6, when we'd gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. That would be due west in the area today of, of I mean, this is Asia Minor. This isn't like he was trying to get to China. This was more like Paul is trying to get in what we know today as the west coast of Turkey, uh, Ephesus, that region that would be due west of where he was. And after they'd come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. That would be today's Istanbul. But the Spirit didn't permit him there either. So passing by Mysia, we went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul had concluded that the Lord had called us there to preach the gospel. Now, did you notice there wasn't a variable in what he was going to do? Paul knew he was called to preach the gospel. That was his calling. But the when and where, that was another story. So what Paul tried to do in simplest sense is he tried to go due west, and the Holy Spirit said, no, we don't have how. So we don't build some kind of weird doctrine on that. All we know is the Holy Spirit didn't let him go that way. So then he tried to go due north. That would be the area of Istanbul. Holy Spirit, again, didn't permit him. So he tried to go due west, tried to go due north, neither worked. So guess where he went? He went northwest. In essence, what God did is he put two fences up, and then Paul wound up walking between them. That's where he wound up. And in Troas, by the way, he picks up, he gets this vision of a Macedonian man, but he also gets something else. And, and I challenge you to do this on your own, but if you look at Acts 16, something changes in the way that it's written, because it goes from he and they to we and us. The writer of the book of Acts, Luke, gets picked up in Troas. God steered Paul to a doctor, because that's what Luke was, which is a good idea because the way that Paul got beat up so much and chased out of town, you, you really kind of need a doctor on staff on your crew. And not every traveling evangelist needs one, but this guy clearly did. And are you following me so far? Here's our basic point on all of this, and we'll move to the point of Hebron. And then we'll actually start, this thing starts to actually gain traction and move forward. Saul is dead. David is the rightful king. But he doesn't just stick a fork into the ground, or if you will, stick his stake or his flag into the ground and say, I'm king now. Everybody bow to me. David never does that here. Instead, the first thing he does is he asks God, is this the now? And where would that be then? Do I go? Do I go now? And if I go now, where? I love the fact that David would seek these things. And though, again, God half a life ago had already ordained him as king, 
God has used these years to prepare him. So that when the promise is actually grabbed a hold of it and realized, David's in the perfect place for it. So where does God tell him to go? According to this, it tells him he tells him to go to Hebron. And this is where it blows wide open for me. I want you to realize what we're looking at. In the simplest sense, the rightful king is now beginning to take his throne. Are you seeing that? He's going to go to Hebron. And in Hebron, David will finally become king of someone other than the 600 banshees that he had with him. So where does God have him begin to take his rightful throne? At a place called Hebron. Hebron was where Abraham pitched his tent and dwelt in Genesis 13 and where he built that altar and then he would go and rescue his nephew Lot. It is the place where he clearly saw some connection because it's where he buried his wife and he himself was buried. But the thing that touches me the most is what Hebron means. As you're probably aware that every Hebrew word comes from a verb. Hebrew is a language of action. And the word Hebron means fellowship. A place to be together under God. Now let me just challenge you with this. In your life, you're in a place where you're happy to have God as Savior And at that point, you're still fighting the fact that the rightful king has to take his throne. And that rightful king isn't taking the throne like he should. Where does he begin to take the throne when you find yourself brought to fellowship? Where it becomes something more than a visit, kind of like Madame Tussauds or something, where you got the shirt or the button or whatever and took a couple pictures for Instagram. Or now it tells us, and one of my favorite verses, tattooed on my ankle, thank you, is the verse Psalm 92, 13, where it says, He who was planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. Not just will do okay, or will not fail, or, you know, I mean, not those things are bad, but the idea of flourish is this person's going to thrive. But not when if they kind of just, hey, God, it's me again, just thought I'd come to visit. David, remember, was the one who said, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David, God's like, Saul, if I, David, I'm sorry, David, if I could give you one thing, what would it be? David would be like, can I just move in? Interesting, because when we got to his son Solomon, he says, if I could give you one thing, what would you want? And Solomon's like, I'll take wisdom. And that sounds like such a great thing until you compare it to what dad asked for. And what would it be for you? I mean, Solomon's just looking, he's like, I feel like I'm a kid. I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. I could really use some wisdom if I'm going to be king. He's like, in other words, probably, I don't know a lot like you, but for me, yes. I'm like, God, I just don't want to fail at this. Could you give me what's necessary to do this right? But that's good. It's just not best. What's best is, can we just be together always, God? And when David says, where do you want me? When the rightful king begins to take the throne, I guarantee you, God is going to bring you into fellowship. 
And he's going to bring you into fellowship, and it will be the place where the wandering father Abraham will die. And you'll start to find a home. Because the rightful king starts to take the throne. But did you notice, by the way, when the rightful king starts to take the throne, it becomes more than just a private thing for David. It tells us then for what it's worth in verse 2. And now look how quickly we're going. We've already made it to verse 2. So David went up there. His two wives also, Ahinom, the Israelites, Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And so the next thing we realize is that when David is starting to take the throne, when the rightful king starts to take the throne, not only do, do you find yourself in fellowship, but your family, you want to take them too. Because when you start realizing that Jesus really is the way, and not a way, but the way, well then, and you love those people, you want them to know him too. But David doesn't just stop with family. Verse 3 says, And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So David dwelt in the cities of Hebron. What that tells us is David not only brought his family, David brought his friends too. David did not want anyone that he knew not going with him. En route for the rightful king to take his throne, you hear God call you to fellowship. And en route to all of that, you start to bring family and friends with it. No, let's face it. Will the world still make fun of that fellowship? More than likely. But you love these people too much to care. Because you'll bear the brunt of that if that's what it takes. Verse 4, then it says, Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And again, I remind you, David did not call those people over to anoint him. God's anointing is by God's choice. Second Corinthians one twenty one tells us he who has anointed us is God. 1 John 2.20 says, But you have the anointing of the Holy One, and therefore know all things. Notice David did not take the rightful throne until he came to fellowship. Hebron. There, by the way, David receives his second anointing. If you think about it, David had already been anointed by God to be king all the way back 15 years ago. David will be anointed here to become king over the nation, or if you will, of the tribe of Judah. But then by 2 Samuel 5, which again, seven and a half years later, David will then be anointed a third time to become king over all. And might I say, in your own life, you find yourself in a place of a healthy fellowship. You're there. Your family, you find family there. You start finding friends there. And as that becomes the case, this king starts to really take command. But then somewhere down the line, you realize, wow, he's really not king over everything and he needs to be. And ultimately, as you stay and you plug in and you watch God do things, he becomes king over all. This is exactly where he should be. I love that that's what we watch here. And then the next thing we read is that David's actually informed about Saul. So it tells us in the last half of verse 4, it says, Then they told David, saying, The men of Yabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Yabesh Gilead. And they said to him, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I will also, I will repay you for this kindness also, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. 
even in Saul's death, David refused to make Saul his enemy. He only mourns the death of those that he that he honors and then rewards those who honored them as well. But I want to warn you, that's not the end of the story. Verse eight. But Abner, the son of Ner, which is fun because Abner means Ner is my dad, the son of Ner, should have saw that coming, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, and we'll develop those names in a moment, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Try that word, Mahanaim. Oh, good, but now say it like Hebrew. Hebrew is like Mahanaim. Oh, that was better. Thank you. And he made a king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Yezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. Now stop. Wait a minute. Look at verse 11. The time that David was king over Hebron, over the house of Judah, was seven years and six months. Whoa, wait a minute. If David was king in Hebron for how long? Seven and a half years. How long was Ishbosheth king? Two years. We get that, right? And ultimately, at the death of Ishbosheth, a little bit of a spoiler alert, David will ultimately, it'll take that for David ultimately to become king over everyone. So wait a minute. How do you reconcile those two? Saul dies. When does Ishbosheth get ordained king? Not immediately. About five years later, does that make sense? Because he's only going to reign two years, and David's going to rule seven and a half. He has to fit somewhere in there the last part of that seven and a half years, because when he dies, ultimately David becomes king over all Israel. And this is the point. When the rightful king is taking his throne, you'll start to see some traction and some beautiful things, but somewhere down the line, something from the past wants to creep up and compete over that throne again. Have you seen it happen yet? I sure have. And here's the best part. Is that the name of the guy here that is raised up. Now clearly he's Saul's son. We read that. Which of course means not all of Saul's sons died in the battle. We'll see another one by the way soon named Mephibosheth. He's actually a pretty cool guy. But a real troubled kid. I mean he's got some issues to deal with. Uh, that David by the way is going to show tremendous grace on. And it's one of my favorite stories. Ishbosheth. David now has now become king over Judah. There's some traction there. You're starting to see the lordship of, of the rightful king in your life, and good things are happening. And then out pops this thing from the past, and Ishbosheth, Isha to this name, to this day, the name means man. You'll see that in a lot of cases. It's even in Arabic, Isha means man. Shet, Bochet means shame. Ishbosheth literally means man of shame. Now, who names their kid that, first of all? You think and go, you know, let's name one of them Tony and another Daniel, and we'll name the other one Shameful Boy. But doesn't, isn't that the perfect name in a place like this? There you are, the rightful. By the way, does anyone know what David means, Davidum? It means beloved. 
And that's where we're at when the rightful king takes the throne. We see that we're beloved, that we see God's love upon us, and we go, God is so good. And how do you not drag your family over? Hey, come on, you guys, you're coming with me to church. Church? No, no, you don't understand. God is so good. You want to know about this guy. And, you know, everything is different. And, now, and let's face it, I can't give you something I'm not infected with. I mean, let's face it, there was a time when Haley was a danger because Haley had a terrible cold and she was hacking up a lung and she kind of sounded like you were starting an old Chevy. She was like, you know, we kind of knew that. We're like, okay, she's got something. It's clear it's manifesting. Stay away from her for a while. But what if we could be contagious with things that were good? Wouldn't that be weird? Like we could be contagious with health. We're like, oh, you're just like, I mean, like, if you saw, I mean, what if just you could stand next to somebody and they could breathe on you and you could get their health? Wouldn't you just be running around looking for the healthiest person you could? I'm like, oh, I'm going to try to run with them at least a block long enough for them to breathe on me just to get all of that. Could you imagine? Or if that happened emotionally where someone was really happy and you're like, if they could just look at me and smile, I'd get happy. Wouldn't that be weird? But not in this world, because this natural world is under the second law of thermodynamics, the idea of entropy. Everything goes to disorder, and it really is kind of going in a very bad direction. God makes that clear. It's got an expiration date. And therefore, bad things win physically. But spiritually, that's an entirely different story. But we can't be contagious with something we don't have. And if we really want people to love Jesus, I suggest you get infected. That's a really sad word, but you get the idea. Let's get to that place. Let's start an epidemic of people who are so in love with Jesus that other people want to stand near us just so that they can catch a little of it. You know, everything that God gives us, you're aware of, he gives us an abundance. Have you learned that? We read it as, Pressed down, packed them, you know, shaken down, pressed down, and running over. We read it as beyond what one can contain, is literally what the term means. Pablo Raymond is the word in the Greek. And understand when he talks about that, why does God give you more than you can contain? So you will share. Why would he give you more than you wanted? Do you think he wants you to like store the rest of it? And when you come to God thirsty, but you believe in Jesus, didn't he say that out of you would torrent living water? I guess the thirst part's kind of done with now, right? So why are you torrenting living water at that point? Because there's a lot of other thirsty people out there that need to know. In our situation, and we'll kind of see it here in a moment, it's kind of an interesting story this way. What we find is, is that the man of shame gets raised up. And when he gets raised up, now we've got a challenge, but it gets even more interesting because we realize he has a commander. The commander's name, as we see here, is, is Abner, right? We see that? And we know Abner, Abba means father, so Abner means Ner is my dad. The question is, what does Ner mean? Ner means fire. So he's literally the son of fire. You can put that where you want, but I know where that sits in my heart. And I realize the man of shame has a commander, and the commander is the son of fire. But they also put him in a particular place, God makes clear. And the place that they took him in verse 8, you tell me, what is the name of the place that they put him? 
You've already said it, by the way. What is it? Ah, that was good. Mahanaim. So what does Mahanaim mean? Mahanaim means two camps. Oh, two camps. So let me get this right. Here I am, the rightful king's taken his throne. I'm recognizing how beloved I am. I'm sitting in the, in the presence of the beloved. and I'm loved by God and I'm enjoying it. But something from the past comes up and it is a man of shame that comes back into my life trying to take the throne again that isn't rightfully his. And he's got, an, he's got an, a general and the general's name is Son of Fire. And he takes and he takes a position at a place called two camps. And unless that guy is put away, that's going to be my life. My life is going to be a life lived in two camps, isn't it? This is why God says he who was planted in the house of the Lord. When you're planted in the house of the Lord, there's only one camp. But when I'm and I'm like, but I'm still going to be in the world. I have to work and I have to meet people. Yeah, but we can walk with the Lord where he's still the Lord of our life in such a way that everything else has to surrender to that. And I look through that lens and I realize I'm an ambassador. No matter where Daniel goes, he will still represent Britain to some degree. The moment he starts speaking, people are going to hear it in the way he speaks. Now, where Hugo goes, he's going to represent France to some degree. But by God's grace, because God reconciles, the two of them can still be the best of friends. No matter how long we live, Deborah will still represent Italy to some degree. And she still sees things, let's face it, she sees things still through the eye of an Italian. Because that's what she comes from. That's where she, that's, she's got Italian blood flowing through her veins. And you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and you have Christ's blood flowing through your veins. And as you have Christ's blood flowing through your veins, you see things differently. It isn't, Deborah doesn't stop being Italian when she goes to work. It's like, you know, the joke, if we want to keep Deborah quiet, what do we do? We tie her hands still. She can't, she can't talk without going, ah, let me tell you what. Right? That's just the way she is. And there are certain things, gifts that God has given you and the way that he's made you that you don't, no matter where you go, you're still that person. <clears throat> I am a pastor no matter where I go. I didn't sign up for it. It was God's calling, but I can tell you I've never complained about it and I've never for a second not loved what I get to do. But I'm a pastor at home, and I'm a pastor here, and no matter where I'm at, and all a pastor is in the wrong place is a pastor. I get that. But I also recognize that I see life, I see through the eyes of a pastor everywhere I go. Because that's who he's made me. And I realize the reason I say that is, is that God never intended for you to live in two camps. When we read in Acts chapter 2 about the early church, we read that they worshipped God in simplicity is the term we read, but it literally means singleness of heart. In other words, they worshipped God in one camp. That's kind of the idea here. So here's the situation. Rightful king's taken the throne, and as the rightful king's taken the throne... Someone from the past, a little blast from the past shows up and he's man of shame with his army sergeant, you know, his commander, uh, son of fire. 
and Son of Fire, by the way, is set up things in a place called two camps, or second camp, if you will. Verse 12. Now Abner, the son of Ner, keeps telling us that, by the way, he wants to remind you, Son of Fire, the Son of Fire, of the servants of Man of Shame, the son of Saul, went out from the second camp, or two camps, to Gibeon. And as he went to Gibeon, it says then, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So we've got two guys. You've got the man of shame's commander, and the man of shame's commander, his name is... What is it? Does he remember? Abner. Son of Ner. And what does Abner mean? Son of fire. Right. On the other side, we have David, beloved's commander. David's beloved's commander's name is Joab. Do you know what Joab means? Father God. That's a cool name. He also has a brother. And the brother's name, we're going to find in a, in a moment, his brother's name is the gift of God or God's gift. I think that's kind of fun. And then we have a third brother. His name is God made it or God made. Now, why would God say God made? Because what's the opposite of God made? Man made. And there's the point. The whole point of what we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, and it'll go rather quickly, is that on one side, David has never taken matters into his own hands. But rather, he's been led by the hand of God. But that doesn't mean everyone else is doing that. And I warn you, there will, as long as there is an Ishbosheth, there will always be a war. Which then leads me to think, that's exactly what Paul told me in Galatians 5. He says that the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. Wait a minute, the spirit lusts? The word lust, epithemia, literally means rages upon. He says the two are contrary to each other. In other words, the, your flesh nature, which by the way, the simplest way to put the flesh nature is you first nature, declares war against the spirit of God's nature, which is Christ first. And the spirit of God, Christ first, is declared war against your flesh nature, me first. And one of them is going to have to die. And you're probably aware of the fact God's already done the dying and resurrection. There's no more dying left for him. This is why it tells us to reckon the body dead to sin. Because it isn't going to convert. Well, what's the best way to win that battle? Starve the flesh nature to death. When the battle is happening, the one you feed is the one you start seeing winning in your life. You start seeing the flesh really take over in your life, chances are you're doing a really good job feeding it and not feeding the spirit of God inside of you. No, not like the spirit's like this Pac-Man. Right now, you are feeding the spirit of God in you, giving God time to take some traction in your life about what he really wants to do. And it's only good. You walk out these doors, and if you start to look at things from any other way but God's sight, 
you'll start feeding the flesh pretty quickly, won't you? Isn't it amazing how quickly you can fall in the flesh? Well, so what do we have? We have these two servants, Father God on one side. And, and now, by the way, and he's certainly not going to be a great example of Father God in many cases, but at least we see that in regards to the words playing out in this chapter. And we see, by the way, and then we have, my dad is fire. And they sat down on there and they said, let the men arise. In verse 15, it says, the men arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of man of shame, son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of beloved David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head, thrust his sword through his opponent's side, and they fell down together. Therefore, they called the place Kahelkat Hatsurim, or, if we will, Field of Sharp Swords, which to me sounds like a kung fu movie, but what do I know? Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibbon. There was a fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the sons of the servants of David. By the way, I do like the fact that it says Abner and the men of Israel versus the servants of David. Did you notice that? The servants of the beloved are going to win. And by the way, I want to, I want to warn you, here is great news. God is going to win. No matter how much you want to feed the flesh, God is going to win. The issue is how much carnage is going to be left in the field. My question to you is, what does the slaying? Only one thing we read here. And according to this, what is it? It's the sword. Did you see that? That's the point here. Is that the only thing that's really going to slay this is the sword. Now, according to scripture, what is the sword? For instance, the sword of the Spirit of God. What is that? It is the Word of God. Excellent. It is the Word of God. And that is the point here. Is that God knows that when we are in His Word, God starts to show us that the flesh starts to get slayed. And it is such a beautiful thing. So back in our text. What we have is we have... You know, each one had 12 guys. So the two commanders sit down and are like, let's let your 12 guys fight my 12 guys. All right. So what happens? They all stand up and they grab each other by the head and they stab each other to death. And all 24 of them fall down dead. And you can see the two guys, the two commanders going, well, that didn't work out so well. And then what do they do? They're like, "Uh, let's fight. Yeah, let's fight. It's time for you to die. You know, and then they all just jump up and start killing each other. There's the idea there. But again, I remind you. Fierce battle that day, but Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And it says, the three sons of Zeruiah, and here's our three brothers. Joab, which means Father God. Abishai, by the way, and Abishai, by the way, means the gift of God. And Asahel, and Asahel means God made. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but the image this paints is so fun because he's going to be chasing a guy in a moment. And I just kind of see him going, Bruh, you know, he's kind of doing like, I kind of almost see him like Mr. Tumness in my head, but like super athletic, you know. And the battle ensues and becomes more, but as the battle ensues, it becomes more and more victorious for David's men. The servants, by the way, I remind you of David. But even if that has to be God's work, not man's work. So Asahel pursues Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from Abner. And this is the strangest thing to me. They're going to have a conversation. This fleet-footed guy is chasing after 
I remind you, son of fire. And he's chasing after him. And the guy's like, hey, so are you, aren't you, you know, how's the hell? And he's like, yeah, that's me. This is such a weird conversation while the guy's like, ah, I'm trying to kill you. He's like, hey, are you trying to kill me? I hurt you, how's the hell? I don't know. Maybe it's just weird to me, but you get the idea. So. So look at it with me. Verse 20. Abner looked behind him. He said, are you out of hell? And he said, I am. And Abner said to him, well, turn aside to your right hand or to the left. And lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. In other words, he's like, hey, why don't you just go and kill someone else? You really don't want to pick a fight with me. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother, Joab, which I remind you is his enemy? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. Now, I don't know how fast they were running, but this is, this. It, uh, again, it looks like kind of a kung fu movie to me. But somewhere in it, the guy's chasing him, and basically what happens is this guy just stops, holds out the end of his spear, and someone that Asahelo did not turn to the right or left just runs right into the thing. But he must have been going pretty darn quick. That this thing goes right through him like this. And he fell down there and died on the spot so that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell and died stood still. I would imagine that would make me stop. Joab and Abishai then also pursued Abner. And the sun, and the sun was going down and they came to the hill of Amar, which is before Gia by the road of the wilderness of Gipaon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner, became a unit, and they took their stand on the top of a hill. And Abner said to Joab, and he said, Shall the sword devour forever? Now, I remind you, Abner, the enemy commander, is saying this. He's going, Do we really have to keep killing each other with swords? And by the way, I want to warn you, this becomes part of the challenge. As I'm growing with God, and as I let the rightful king take his throne, the commanding enemy... Or the enemy commander says, do you have to still keep using that sword? There's got to be something else you can use by now. Come on, your logic a little bit, a little bit of experience. But let me be honest here. The sword was really, really, really effective. It did its job really well. And when the enemy starts losing, wouldn't it be wise for him to say, I think from this point on, round two, we're using pillows, not swords. Because he already knows he's losing. And as he gathers his troops, he looks and he's like, do we have to keep whipping out our swords like this? I remind you, the losing enemy is saying this. What do you do? Well, unfortunately here... It tells us. Abner said, shall the sword, this is verse 26, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? Bitter for whom? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing the brothers? So Joab said, as the Lord, I'm sorry, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. In other words, he goes, had you not said anything, we would have kept going. It is really sad. So when the enemy tells you, and this is how it works. Think about it. I don't know how many of you have ever had to do anything that involves endurance. Like, for instance, run a marathon, 
or done anything that's really demanded a great period of time. You know, to be honest, every one of us does, even with things that are really often insignificant in the side of life, like you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle, you know, or something you're like, well, do you, you just stop right now. You really don't have to go any farther. Now, in some things, that makes sense because you have, like, life to live. It isn't like you're going to binge watch something and your life's going to be so much better for it. But on the other side of it, when it comes to following the Lord, you know the enemy goes, isn't that enough? And you know what the problem is? You're going to hear this from people who, in many cases, may even be Christians, who love you and are speaking to you out of love, but very misguidedly, and say something like, don't you think you're getting a little overboard with this Jesus thing? And you're like, overboard? That would be awesome. And you know what I've learned? It is so much easier to walk on the water to Jesus than it is to walk on ground and follow him for the rest of my life. Because that one brief moment, that's a way cool moment. Which, by the way, you had to go overboard to do. But to follow Jesus to the cross on dry ground for the rest of my life... That takes a real commitment. And that's when you really start to do that. <clears throat> People that really care are like, you know, you're really going crazy with this whole God thing. I'm like, could you imagine the father in careful love of Jesus looking at Jesus and going, Jesus, don't you think you're going a little overboard with this whole getting beaten, dying on a cross naked for people thing? Don't you think it would have been enough to heal a few people and teach a couple of really good sermons so people could follow you? I think you're going really obsessive with this thing. I can tell you this. Jesus is the only thing that I know of you can't overdose on, and I have tried with Jesus. And I will encourage you. I challenge you to try to do the same. You will not be. You will not be sorry. When you stand before him, you won't go, dang, I wish I hadn't really gotten into you so much. You will not be sorry. But the enemy, and I would expect him to say, do you really have to keep using that Bible? Do you have to keep swinging that sword of the Spirit like that? Is that really what you need to do? Come on, by this point, use a little of your own logic. Come on. That's good. People will know you're smart that way. Don't you think it'll be bitter in the end? Joab blows a trumpet in verse 28, and all the people stood still and didn't pursue Israel anymore. They didn't fight anymore. Then Amner and his men went out all that night through the plain and crossed over Jordan, and they went to Bithron, which, by the way, means, interestingly enough, I remind you, this is the enemy camp, and they go to a place that means splits in two. And they came to Mahanaim, which means double camp or two camps. Job returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered the people together, those that were missing of David's servants were 19 men and Asahel, which we all agree that makes 20 men. That was pretty simple. Simple math, right? You're with me on that? Nineteen guys plus one more. How's that help? But why does God list him? Well, because he happens to be Joab, the commander's brother, which puts Joab in a place where he's not real happy that someone killed his brother. You killed my brother. Prepare to die. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. So on one side, 360. On the other side, 20. We're going to just put Asahel in there. So they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. I find that interesting. Of course, where David's from. And we're going to find out later that these men are actually David's cousins. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came back to 
have grown at daybreak. After this battle is fought, where do you go? You go back to fellowship. And you're like, and you know this, and you're in the middle of a struggle. The last place you want to go was with people who love God. Because after all, you just know you walk in, and the enemy's already told you this. You walk in, everyone's going to know you're struggling, right? They're going to kind of look and go, oh, that's like a six-day hangover, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing what the enemy will tell you to keep you out of fellowship. Why does he want to do that? Because he knows how dangerous it is for you to be among other people who love him. And with that... David's men are going to go back to fellowship and regroup. And ultimately, there will be great victory and David, as we know, will become king of all. And I want to challenge you as we go to prayer. God has ordained in your life and in mine only one king. And here's the crazy part. You were never on that throne. You may have thought you were. But if you were on that throne, then you're a dumber king than you think you are. If I was on the throne of my life... Clearly, I was the dumbest guy that could have sat on it because the stupid things I did that destroyed myself and other people I loved clearly demonstrate I really have no right to sit on that throne. I abrogate the throne, and that is the wisest thing I can do. And there is a king who rightly deserves to sit on that throne. The enemy has been sitting there before that, convincing you it was you. Who else comes to steal, kill, and destroy like that? And now... He wants to be king of all. But he isn't going to just say, hey, I'm going to take it by force. He would rather you hand it over by choice. And when you hand it over by choice, he takes the rightful throne and your life changes. You start to see how beloved you are. You start to see how good things are. And all of a sudden, you hunger for fellowship. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And God's word becomes a weapon. Not to kill other people, but to, sh- to slay the enemy in your own life. That the past that would rise its ugly head and become in, to try to, to put that man of shame, that shame back in your life, gets taken down where it belongs. And I just want to pray for you and I want to pray for me that we would willingly let Jesus be our king of everything. And in that, may God so drive us to a place where we become infectious, contagious, epidemic, so that the people around us would know about how great our King is. And we can tell them there's room at the table. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you so, so much for my precious brothers and sisters. The privilege of being able to sit in a room like this and the warmth on a cold day outside. Maybe able to sit here and drink warm drinks and eat popcorn and they open your word and feast on it and know you have a great word to speak to us. So I pray for every person here, myself included. Lord, for those who know you put a promise and a calling on our life and we want to see it manifested and we're just... We're ready for it to be now. And and we see these situations happen in our life that can be so challenging. And we, unless we know that the space in between is space of preparation to prepare us to best use the promise when it is actuated in our lives, 
we could really be in a rough spot. But God, we recognize you've never failed a promise. And Lord, you enter into covenants that demand relationship. And so, God, I just pray that you would give us greater faith to know, Lord, you know the when, you know the where. And God, as you know the when and where, give us the faith to embrace every situation that happens to us in the interim, in that in-between, to know, Lord, that you will still bring everything to pass you've promised, and you are only preparing us for those things even now. And I also pray, God, for every one of us, for the battle that takes place first, Lord, for you, Jesus, to take your rightful place upon our hearts. But even as you do and you begin to just start to exert that, that, that rulership, that lordship over us, we recognize that doesn't mean that we're going to be free from the, the past, trying to raise its ugly head and trying to sort of usurp the throne. And usually in a case like this, it isn't even like, it goes to take over everything initially. We just kind of see it as something else inserted into our life to put our hearts into two camps. But we recognize that's not where you have us. That's not where you want us. So, God, we just pray that we would pick up your word and embrace what you say. And that we would give you everything and let you be Lord of all. That we would worship you in simplicity of heart, singleness of heart. That there'd be only one camp and it'd be yours. It isn't about you being on our side. It isn't about you being in our camp. It's about our, about us being in yours. So, Lord, we want to thank you that you went overboard by leaving heaven and trading the glory of all of that for the frailty of humanity to come and clothe yourself in flesh, die on the cross on our behalf, so that all of the sin and filth and shame that we have incurred could be paid for without us having to spend eternity separate from you. And even though our iniquities have initially separated us from you, you have, that, Father, you have laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all so that it could be properly punished so that we no longer have to be separated from you. And as he rose from the dead, he is rightfully Lord rightful king over all, the king of kings. And so, we declare you so. And thank you. Thank you for the privilege tonight of being able to just consider again, are you really Lord of every area of my life? My hopes, my dreams, my priorities, my identity. God, please, today, let Jesus take his rightful place to be Lord over all. In his name we pray. Amen.